Graduating from college can be scary. Yeah, it's exciting, but all of a sudden, there you are in the real world with a degree, debt, and lots of questions. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. This week, our graduation special. We're revisiting some lessons we told you last year about work, credit, and saving. The economic world is full of stuff you can't control, so we're going to focus on the things you can. And we'll start by hearing from you. We're calling this show Graduating into the Economy. But what does that mean? And what does it feel like? Here are some thoughts and advice from a few 2017 grads. My name is Michelle Salinas. I'm 24 years old, and I graduated from UCLA last June. I'm a first-generation college graduate, daughter of working-class immigrants. I've been on the job hunt for almost a year now. But there's a huge disconnect between college and getting a job. We don't learn how useless submitting applications online can be without a direct reference. We doubt ourselves and our capabilities, and that's amplified if you're a woman, a person of color, working class, etc. My name is Keith Ellis. I am the president of the University of California Merced Alumni Association. One huge issue plaguing our generation is how do we obtain that well-paying career in our field? How do we articulate our value and worth to employers during salary negotiations without coming across arrogant, egotistical, or unreasonable in our ask? Hello, my name is Gina Agbanyi. I'm 28 years old and a graduate from Loyola Marymount University with my master's in counseling. For our program, we have to complete 600 hours of an internship and it's a little difficult to work full time during that process. So I decided to not work and supplement, well, fulfill my income with loans. And that is something that I am fearful about, trying to be hopeful to think that education debt is good debt, but um, it's still dead in the long run. The biggest thing most graduates are thinking about? No surprise, it's work. And when you look at the numbers, it's a good time to join the workforce. According to the payroll processor ADP, the average pay for new workers age 24 and under increased just over 5% in March, compared to 2.5% in the last two years. In part, that's due to the low unemployment rate. And the good news continues. Graduates in most fields this year can expect a higher starting salary than their 2017 counterparts. So says the National Association of Colleges and Employers, which is just as well as total student loan debt in the U.S. stands at around $1.4 trillion. So how do you break through the noise to get the job you want? Allison Green from Ask a Manager sat down with my colleague Molly Wood this time last year to answer all your first job questions. So we had this sort of somewhat basic question from a listener, which was, do millennials switch jobs more frequently? There's certainly the impression that they do. There is the impression that they do. I do think there's some truth to it. And part of it is that they haven't had the same sort of loyalty from employers that used to be more typical. And they are painfully aware that they are not likely to get the same kind of commitment from a company that their parents might have had. And so they might not be as inclined to show it themselves in return. But, you know, I think there's another side of this that you don't hear as much about, which is that a lot of millennials would really like to have stable employment where they can settle in for a while. But they graduated, a lot of them graduated into such a tough economy that they've had trouble finding that. Um, So you see more switching jobs as they try to move onto the path that they want to be on. But I think for a lot of people, it's 
less about a preference to jump around and more about what they've had to do to survive in an economy that's been hard to be a young worker in. Wow, that's interesting. Do you think that the parents have learned some of the same lessons about companies or that even if older people are switching jobs, it's it's sort of the same dynamic? Um, I think I hear from a lot of readers who get job advice from parents and other older relatives that to them doesn't seem to reflect the reality that they know. Um, so they, I hear a lot about parents who are kind of panicky that their kid is, is switching job after a couple of years and, and they worry about what that's going to do to their career history. And the kid is like, look, all of my friends do this. This is really typical in my industry. I think it varies, but I do think there's a real phenomenon of, of parents whose job searching advice reflects another time. Yeah. How, if you are stringing jobs together, is there a way that you can brand yourself that will help you establish a career? Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, if you can avoid jumping around a lot, it is a good thing to avoid. Not everyone has the luxury of avoiding it. Um, I wouldn't jump just to find something new after a year or two. You can do that a few times, but if you keep doing it, it's going to limit your options. But if you've found yourself in that position through no fault of your own, or, or maybe it has been your fault, but you want to figure out what to do about it now, I think you want to look at what the common strands have been in the work that you've been doing. I mean, one advantage to staying at a job for, say, five years is that usually you're able to show some progression in terms of responsibilities and autonomy and authority. So I'd look at your career through that lens. Is there a way to show it with the multiple jobs that you've had? So let's say you are uh, job hopping and job hunting. Let's go back to basics. What makes your resume or your cover letter stand out to a hiring manager? The thing that I see most people not doing as well as they could be is not just talking about the assignments that they've been given or the things they've been responsible for, but what they actually achieved, what outcomes resulted from their work. I mean, you want your resume to be different than the resume that that a coworker who did kind of a mediocre job <laughs> would have. You want yours to reflect something different. Because hiring managers don't just want to know what your job description was, which is what a lot of resumes show. They want to know what kind of employee you were. What did you get done? What changed as a result of it being you in that job versus someone else? And then how do you hold your own during an interview process? I mean, it seems like interviews these days last four days and have a bunch of homework. Yeah. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you kind of stand up for yourself? I think... Most importantly, you really want to be prepared. You want to spend time before your interview really reflecting on what it takes to do the job well and what evidence you can point to that you would excel at it. Too often, people don't spend the time getting clear on that themselves. And if you don't, you can't really expect your interviewer to get a clear picture of it either. So you want to walk into the interview ready to share examples of times when you have successfully used the skills that the job requires. Um, and I think, too, you want to think about what you need to know from the interviewer to figure out if it's a job that you want and would do well at. And people tend to really neglect this part of it, especially newer grads, but it's it's really crucial to ask your own questions and think rigorously about the answers to make sure that you end up in a job that you're good at and that you can be happy in. What about negotiating? I know that's everyone's favorite topic, but if you don't, say, get the salary you want, can you actually negotiate things like benefits? 
Yeah, sometimes you can. It's often easier to do it in smaller companies where things aren't quite as standardized. But really, in any type of company, the easiest benefit to negotiate will almost always be vacation time. And especially if you're coming from a company where you had pretty generous vacation time, you can explain that you don't want to lose that, and you can ask the new company to match it. There's often more flexibility there than than people realize, and and particularly if a company really wants you, they're going to look for ways to make it work. I will say for millennials. New grads will generally have less negotiating power. You know, when you're pretty new to working, you're more likely to have to take the standard benefits package. But it's good to know that as you become more in demand, it is something that you can negotiate. What's the What's the most surprising advice that you find that you still have to give? The thing that I find myself saying probably more than anything else is to just. Talk, talk like a normal person. If there's something that is upsetting you, or something that you want, or something you wish was happening differently, so often, and I especially see this with younger workers, but it's true in all age groups. So often, people sort of suffer in silence, and they get frustrated, or resentful, or just unhappy. Speaking up doesn't always fix it, but very often, if you just have a conversation, I mean, whether it's my coworker is singing loudly all the time and it's driving me crazy, or I want a raise, or I was hired to work on X, but all of my time is being spent on Y, whatever it might be, having a conversation will almost always get you at least closer to the outcome you want than saying nothing at all. That was Ask a Manager's Allison Green speaking with Molly Wood back in 2017. Allison will be back with us in a couple of weeks to talk about vacation or complete lack thereof. Hit us up with your questions. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. We'll bring you a little more on graduating into the economy in a moment. But first, a little news by the numbers in the language of the youngs with Marketplace producers Sarah Menendez and Tony Wagner. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 72. That's the percentage of 18 to 25-year-olds who said it's easier to put their feelings into emoji than text. That's according to a survey by UK mobile company Talk Talk Mobile. 60 million emoji are shared on Facebook every day. And at last measure, about 5 billion more emoji were sent daily on Messenger. Five. That's how many emoji Facebook has flagged as potentially used for bullying. A leaked document obtained by Vice Motherboard breaks down how the social network monitors emoji use. It includes emoji used as hate speech and emoji used to solicit sex. Yes, the eggplant and peach made the cut, but the document is not meant to encompass everything, and moderators always have the final say. 157. That's how many new emoji Google is rolling out in the Android P update later this summer. There will be gender-neutral emoji, a bagel, and both redhead and bald emoji. Another tweak, Google salad emoji is losing the egg, which means it's now vegan-friendly. Ugh, thank God. It was really bothering me. I love eggs. Bring back the egg. (laughs) Bring back the egg. We're continuing our look at life after college and the economic realities for new grads. There are a few pillars of building a financial future, finding the right job, saving money, and building your credit score. It matters. But here's the thing. 
a lot of recent graduates grew up in the shadow of the Great Recession. Lots of them have student loans, and the median was around seventeen grand in 2016. So it's easy to understand why any debt feels really scary, but it is part of building a credit score. Brian Kelly is the founder of ThePointsGuy.com, a site devoted to helping people build credit while having a little fun at the same time. He's got some advice for new grads who are just getting started. So the first thing I would do is check your credit score. You can do it for free at annualcreditreport.com, as well as there's a number of credit cards, if you already have one, that will let you check your FICO score. And your FICO score is the key score you want to understand because that's what most uh, credit card companies will use to judge your credit worthiness. FICO is very transparent with how they calculate a score. So the biggest part is 35% of your score is payment history. So even if you don't pay your bills off in full every month, making sure you at least make the minimum payment is 35% of your score. After that, it's 30% of amounts owed. So you know, paying off your bills in full every month is the quickest way to increase your score. And then 15% is the length of credit history. This is where college grads may you know, fall a little bit. And then there's 10% credit mix. So not just having credit cards, but also auto loans and store credit accounts. And then 10% is new credit. So there's no one factor that will destroy your credit score, so to speak. But, you know, being strong in all those areas is, is what makes someone credit worthy. Even if you don't have a credit card yet, you might have a credit history from student loans. Once you've checked your score, it's time to figure out what kind of card you might want to get. Millennials want experiences. So millennials don't want fancy watches. They want to travel. They want to go and explore Southeast Asia and they don't have huge salaries. Points can provide experiences that you otherwise can't afford. You want to start your relationship off with the credit card companies that have the best products. So even if you can't qualify for one of the premium cards right now, Chase, American Express, and Citi and Capital One are kind of the the big dogs in the rewards game. So with Chase, you don't want to go for the Sapphire Reserve, which is a Visa Infinite product. So that's actually the highest amount of credit needed to get. You want to start with just a a regular Visa product, like their Freedom Card, no annual fee, and they have rotating categories or the Freedom Unlimited. So those cards are generally easier to get. You don't need to have a huge credit history and, and salary to get a beginner card like that. The no annual fee cards are definitely a good starting point, but the biggest mistake I see people make is looking at, oh, well, this card has no annual fee. It's the best. Actually, the cards with like $95 annual fees, like the Sapphire Preferred, they waive the fee the first year, plus have huge bonuses, like 50,000 points, which is worth, you know, conservatively $625, if not more, if you know how to transfer the points. So I would say don't just go for a no annual fee because you're going to save money in the short term. Think of the big picture. And also think about the areas where you spend the most in your day-to-day life and try to get a card that gives you bonuses on those categories. Not into points and miles? Well, if you're just looking to save money, there's a card for that too. Even if you don't want to travel, I'd recommend still getting a cash back card because cash is king. So City has a no annual fee double cash card, which essentially gives 2% back uh, when you pay your bill off in full, which is the most rich cash back no annual fee card, in my opinion. You know, definitely getting a cash back card. It'll help you build credit and put more money in your pocket. So apparently there's a card for everything. But how about that rumor out there that millennials don't like credit cards? 
Millennials definitely like credit cards. Uh, that's our number one audience on our site, but they want cards that give them value. So they are definitely skeptical and want value, but that's why so many college grads and millennials do have points earning credit cards. So I would recommend, you know, if you are skeptical, that's good. You should be. You know, the credit card companies in history had deceptive practices, but as long as you understand credit and you're not going to bury yourself in debt, then getting a credit card makes complete sense. So there you have it. You can find more advice on building your credit on our website. Just go to marketplace.org. And plenty of you reached out with thoughts and questions. Haley Townsend graduated from Kenyon College in Ohio last year. On the jobs front, she says her friends fall into two categories of disenchanted workers, the ones who are passionate about what they do but get paid very little, and the ones who have a great-paying job but sort of hate it. She asked, why is it so difficult for millennials to strike the right balance between a job that matters to them and a job that lets them support themselves? We also heard from Kevin Longa, an independent documentary filmmaker in California. He asked about profitable business models for content creators now that there's so much available online for free. We also got this voice memo. Hi, my name is Intasar Siraj. I'm 25 years old and I graduated from the University of Southern California. As a recent graduate, even though I have prior work experience, it's tough finding a job right now. I think people want you to know someone they want you to start off as an intern, which is very frustrating. I graduated with my master's degree. Another thing that I think about when I think about building my financial future, actually living in a city that is affordable because I want to be able to save money while I make money and be able to travel and whatnot. And we got a lot of advice from you on Facebook and Twitter. Stuff like, live like you're still a student, save, save, save. That's from Nancy Matthews in Greenwich, Connecticut. Fakrit Atalai from Atlanta, Georgia, said start saving early. Compound interest is a beautiful thing. And Linda Chenoweth Harlow in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, suggests young grads take advantage of a 401k if their job offers it. And put in as much as you can afford. Roll it over into another account if you leave and resist the urge to dip into it, she says. Do you agree? Let us know your thoughts on jobs, housing, and saving for the millennial generation, especially if you belong to it. Email us at weekend at marketplace.org. Here's a number that might surprise you. More than 90% of millennials eventually want to buy a house, according to the National Association of Home Builders. And yeah, we know that can seem really far off or totally unlikely. But there are things new graduates can do now to make it easier in the future. So we've got Delia Fernandez, a personal financial planner with us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, if you have just graduated college or you're in your 20s, um, is thinking about owning a home even on your radar? Should it even be? You know, it really depends on who you are and what you want to accomplish. Um, sometimes at that point, you don't know where you're going to wind up. And so locking yourself into a house and a commitment is not the right thing for you. But if you're in a big metropolitan area, you know you want to stay there, maybe thinking about a house soon is a good idea. If you are thinking in that way, what should you be doing now? You should be getting an assessment of how good you would look to a lender. So it's a good idea to first build a relationship with somebody who could extend you credit. That could be a bank or a credit union. I love credit unions. So you want to lay out what you have coming in and what your debts are going out. 
Um, because lenders are going to look at the ratio of your debt to your income. And they're looking at your gross income, your monthly gross income and um, your monthly debts. So don't worry about after tax what your net check is. Look at your gross income and figure out how good you look. A lot of people have student loans, you know, of varying amounts. And when I was, you know, young and graduating from college, um, Student debt was thought of as okay debt, good debt to have because there was a a bigger payoff in the end. If a lender is looking at your finances, are they still looking at it that way or are they looking at it differently? They certainly could and it depends on how much debt you have in comparison to how much you make. Are you spending 50 cents of every dollar you bring in on debt or are you spending only 10 or 15 cents of every dollar you bring in on debt? Uh, the lower the better, but also it may be good interest rate, uh, maybe a good interest rate on that debt. And it may be federal loans that you have the ability to pay back over good terms if you check out the terms of those loans. So don't automatically think that f- that debt is bad debt. For so long, home ownership was projected as this thing that people ought to pursue. Post-crisis, should you think that that homeownership is a goal or is renting just fine? Renting can be just fine. Homeownership in some neighborhoods looks like the ticket to building assets because in big cities, big metropolitan areas, the good news is those homes go up in value. But even in not those areas, areas where homeownership stays pretty stable in terms of price, the nice thing is, is you can give yourself a predictable cost of housing if you get a fixed rate mortgage. So you're not at the mercy of a landlord who's always raising the rent. But in between is the rest of the world. The rest of the world, the rest of the people who need to have the flexibility to move when they have to for a new job or for other opportunities or something that comes up with a partner or spouse. If you are just out of college or if you're young, what is the financial version of yourself you want to project that can help you build you know, good relationships in the long run? You want to be that financial person who pays their bills on time, who doesn't run up credit card debt they can't pay off, and who regularly saves money. When I think about that loan manager sitting at the credit union or bank, they're going to be looking at the accounts that you have with them and seeing if that's who you are. But if instead they see somebody who's always running up against the limit on their credit cards, who maybe has some late payments, who doesn't have any savings anywhere, you're not the right person for them to give a loan to. How do you manage the kind of student debt we see these days with the idea of also trying to build an emergency fund? There is a wonderful tip that not too many people take advantage of. They need to go out to the government student aid website and check out the terms of their student loans. I find way too few people know the terms of their loans. They don't know what they owe. They don't know whether they're federal or private. They don't know whether they're subsidized or unsubsidized. And they aren't aware of the special programs that they have available to them. If you have special federal loans, you may have an opportunity to repay those or have them forgiven in shorter periods of time. People who go and work for nonprofits, teachers who work in certain neighborhoods, government workers, you might be able to work off those loans in 10 to 20, 25 years. Now, 25 years seems like a long time. But I really want to urge people, particularly their parents, who if there is a bank of mom and dad, sometimes the parents want to sweep in 
refinance those loans or pay them off with a home equity line. And I say, wait, let's see if the government is giving us a deal. You know, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, What, 24 years? Yes, yes. Did you do anything really stupid when you were younger that, you know, you think, hey, this is something I could wave people off of doing, you know, as they as they set out into the world? Yes. Before I got into the financial world, I thought that having more credit cards meant that I was more of an adult. So I had one of those wallets where the plastic unfolded and you had a stream of credit cards. Yeah. And the minute I got into the credit business, I started cutting them up and closing them down. It's not that you want 20 credit cards. You want, you know, maybe two or three good ones. You want maybe a car loan or maybe a student loan that you've paid on time. To get good credit, you don't need a lot of credit. You just need a lot of the right kinds of credit. What are the right kinds of credit? I think the right kind of credit is something where you show that you can pay off something over time. Number one, you can use a credit card and pay it off as agreed. Now, agreed could be just the minimum payment. I'm going to urge you to pay it off every month. You have the same credit, whether you keep a debt that you that you pay over time and pay interest or whether you pay it off every month. So a credit card that you pay on time is really critical. If you can get an installment loan, like a car loan, even for a used car, that's really good. You know, you can even open up a credit card with um, a deposit. You can walk in and say, I want a $500 credit line. Here's 500 bucks, you know, that magical 500 extra bucks. And they will give you credit based on that, a secured credit card. Um, those are really good places to start. And it, it's good advice for every age. Delia Fernandez, personal financial planner and investment advisor. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. worked on this show. We chatted with co-workers about what they wish they'd known when they graduated college. After all, we talk business, finance, and the economy all the time, right? Here are a few thoughts from the lovely folks of Marketplace. Hey, everybody. It's Kai. Here's my 20 seconds on what to think about uh, as you graduate. Uh, it's okay not to have a plan. It's okay not to have a plan. I was 34 years old before I figured out I wanted to do radio. I had two careers before that, and I had no plan. It's okay not to have a plan. Hi, I'm David Brancaccio, host of the Marketplace Morning Report. I wish upon my graduation, someone had looked me in the eye and said this. The secrets to success are show up to work on time, shower occasionally, and learn Mandarin. Hey, this is uh, Andy Euler. I am a reporter at Marketplace. One thing I wish I would have known when I graduated is to not be suckered into 0% APR when you're signing up for a credit card. You'll end up paying for it in the long run if you don't just pay those credit cards off immediately. Hey, this is Marketplace reporter Jed Kim. My advice is you're going to be applying for a lot of jobs that you really want, getting rejected. I'd say every now and then apply for one you really don't want because there's nothing more cathartic than writing a cover letter you just don't care about. Hey, it's Molly, and I'm here with some mom-style financial advice. You know, sometimes you don't always get taught how to deal with money early on. And maybe for some of you, this show is actually the Cliff's Notes you wish you'd gotten before you graduated. But I'm here to tell you, don't beat yourself up, don't take it personally, and try not to get emotional. It's 
just money. And even though it feels really personal, it's a skill like any other that you can learn and you can figure out. Adulting is hard, but it's not that hard. You can do this. And a thought of my own, it's okay to screw up. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee you will. You might get fired, make a big mistake, or do something, well, you really wish you hadn't. And I can tell you now, 20 years out of graduating from college, that that was when I learned the most, both about myself and the world in general. If you attend any graduation, you're likely to hear one thing. No, not cheering families or camera shutters. This. That tune, Pomp and Circumstance, and graduation ceremonies have become pretty much inseparable. Seriously, I am celebrating my 20th college reunion right now, and it is stuck in my head. Marketplace's Peter Balanon Rosen set out to try to figure out why this song is always played at graduations. And it all starts with a British dude who didn't even graduate. In 1872, at age 15, would-be composer Edward Elgar left school. Almost 30 years later, in 1901, the self-taught composer wrote Pomp and Circumstance, our graduation banger. Now, this version of Pomp and Circumstance, March number 1 in D, is the first of five in a series— The song was so popular, it was used for the 1902 coronation of Britain's King Edward VII. And the name, Pomp and Circumstance, it comes from a line in Shakespeare's Othello. The royal banner and all quality pride, pomp and circumstance of glorious war. So, how did this thoroughly British song make its way to American graduations? In 1905, Elgar received an honorary doctorate of music from Yale, and they played the song in his honor. People loved it. Soon, other colleges were like, yo, we should do that too. Princeton used it, then University of Chicago and Columbia. It was a domino effect. Today, Pomp and Circumstance is a capital T thing. So is anyone making money off that? Not really. Pomp and Circumstance is in the public domain. Still, specific recordings of it could be copyrighted. So, new grads, if you're looking for a way to lock down some cash, make an end-all, be-all version of the song. One colleges will both want to use and be willing to pay for. From New York, I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen for Marketplace. When you set out into the working world, you require professional clothing. And if there is one brand that's emerging as the aspirational work uniform of 20-somethings, it's Everlane. Welcome to Everlane. Um, You're standing in the entryway to our office. Um, They are known for their minimalist style, and they are all over Instagram and Facebook. We sent two of our producers to check out their San Francisco headquarters. Hi, I'm Eliza Mills. I'm Haley Hirschman, and we're going to be telling you about Everlane. That's the sound of t-shirts being made at Everlane's factory in Los Angeles, California, and it's playing in the bathroom at Everlane's headquarters in San Francisco's Mission District. It's all part of the experience of Everlane and its brand. You can see it in the rest of the office. Airy open spaces, lots of trendy houseplants, white walls, blonde woods, everything is ready to be put on Instagram. That includes the company's staff, dressed head-to-toe in the muted grays, olives, and navy blues you see in Everlane's clothing. Whenever someone was wearing the same thing, we would take photos of them and call it, like, Everlane Twins. It happens more often than not. (laughs) That's Alyssa Bergerson, the communications lead at Everlane. 
And the Everlane twin thing is intentional. It's almost made to feel like a makeshift uniform, and not just for Everlane employees. We make clothes so that you can focus on doing great work and you don't have to like worry too much about like what you look like or anything like that. Red Gaskell runs social media at Everlane. Fashion is all about copycats. With no copyrights on designs, it's really easy for popular styles to make their way from high-end brands down to fast fashion stores. Everlane's biggest competition is from middle-tier retail brands like J.Crew's sister company Madewell and the Japanese shop Uniqlo. And even though the brand may feel exclusive, the minimalist style it's curating is everywhere, and it's a mainstay on social media. That's important, says Kurt Cascino. He runs the millennial marketing agency Hype Life Brands. Things like Instagram have so much power because millennials also speak in pictures more than they do words. That's a really powerful way for retail brands to really reach millennials is to speak in the way that they speak. What millennials care about is crucial to Everlane's success. Over 30% of its customers are between 18 and 35. 95% have some college education. Of course, not everyone fits into the Everlane market. There are plenty of people who are unwilling or unable to pay a premium for transparency, especially for clothes billed as basics. But as millennials get older and their wallets get a little thicker, pleasing this customer base will be even more important. Here's Kurt Cushino again. Within the millennial generation is over $200 billion in buying power. The future of retail and any real B2C brand really relies on the millennial generation. Millennials are notably brand loyal, but what keeps them coming back is frequently more about ethics than product. Everlane's business model is built on what they call radical transparency. They disclose information on the factories that make their clothes and the price of labor and materials that go into each product. Retail journalist Elizabeth Holmes likens it to other ethical consumer movements. It's like with the farm-to-table movement. You know, people want to know where their food came from. People want to know where their clothes came from. Everlane is hoping that transparent pricing is the next organic kale. But blank slate basics and even transparent pricing are easy to mimic. And if other brands copy Everlane's model, it could present a challenge. For now, what has put Everlane ahead is the brand evangelism it inspires. We met Yana Ivanov, a 20-year-old customer at the company's flagship brick-and-mortar shop. Here's why she buys Everlane. I was, like, really in search of, like, a sustainable clothing company for, like, a long time. And every time I found one, it was, like ridiculously hippie and I'm just like this is cool but like I don't want to look like that and so it's cool to see them have like modern styles. If Everlane is betting right it's possible to make a business of blending in and letting its personality shine through. That's Alexandra Spunt's job. She's Everlane's creative head. She focuses on storytelling mostly visuals but because this is for the radio we asked her to describe the company as if it were a sound. I sleep with a fan and I just love that like were it can move in and out of your awareness. Like sometimes you don't even know it's there. And then in other moments you're like, oh, I love that sound. And you feel the wind on your face. And so it would be something maybe subtle like that. If Everlane's pared down aesthetic is the fan and its transparent pricing is the breeze on customers' faces, maybe it can be the white noise millennial fashion needs to get through another night. That was Marketplace Weekend's Eliza Mills, along with Haley Hirschman. And you can take a fun little quiz. Is it Everlane or is it a scene from Nancy Myers, The Intern? You can find it at Marketplace.org. (laughs) 
from trendy clothes to the trendy backdrop for selfies in those clothes. Lately, that means plants. Instagram is extremely green these days. Accounts devoted to houseplants and gardening have hundreds of thousands of followers. And one company is cashing in on the hipness of houseplants among young gardeners. The Sill started life as a local business in New York City and now ships nationwide. Hi, my name is Eliza Blank, and I am the founder and CEO of The Sill. The reason why I started The Sill was really to fill a void in my own life. So I had moved to New York City from Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a very green town. I moved to New York to attend NYU, and as an 18-year-old, was really struck by the lack of greenery in New York. I felt like there was a real void in my life. And in fact, I grew up with a lot of houseplants at home. My mother is from the Philippines. And so she grew up climbing mango trees in her backyard. And when she moved to the States, she made it a point not only to be an avid gardener, but to fill my childhood home with houseplants. I knew entering into this business that it was a sizable market. So we know Americans are spending billions of dollars on houseplants, pots, and accessories each year. But they just weren't able to do so in a way that mimicked their day-to-day life now. So the garden center industry really hasn't changed in the eyes of the consumer for nearly 100 years. I went into this knowing that this was a business. It wasn't going to just be a hobby. It wasn't going to just be solving my own problem. I saw this as a problem that many Americans face that I wanted to tackle. Today for us, because of the way that we've built the brand, we really found our niche to be with millennials. So about 44% of our customers are ages 25 to 34, which is really great because we know that the fastest growing segment of gardeners happens to be millennials. And we know that we can speak to them in their language because nobody else is, and that's a real advantage to us. Millennials are the ones who are, you know, they're moving to the cities, they're living in in apartments or smaller homes. Plants offer a really low-cost way to decorate or maybe to spruce up your home or maybe to change things up a little bit. And we're certainly seeing a ton of inspiration on social media, whether it's Pinterest or Instagram. Millennials love to share, and I think that's also been a compelling piece of our business is that we sell plants and plants are beautiful and everybody wants to share pictures of their plants. It's that combination of offering, you know, the right size plant, the right price plant, the right types of plants that are kind of on trend and to an audience who otherwise spends nearly 90% of their life indoors and the majority of their day in front of a screen. Okay, I'm taking you to my favorite plant. Right now, we're standing in front of our shelves in the store, which we have mounted pretty high up. And the reason is is that we sell a lot of plants that trail. So one of my all-time favorite plants is the philodendron. What I love about it is it produces these beautiful green heart-shaped leaves, and it grows really quickly. It was always an inspiration for me for the business because, of course, we want to grow the business quickly. And it's also an incredibly resilient plant. You pretty much can't kill it. It will suffer tremendously and it still won't die. So I love that idea of of always growing and really being able to sort of visually see that for yourself. If you need a little help figuring out what plants work with your lifestyle, you can find some suggestions on our website, marketplace.org. Time now.
now for the Marketplace Quiz. That is when we ask people in the spotlight questions about work and money and lessons they learned along the way. And we're going to hear from the woman who played my favorite character on Freaks and Geeks. And instead of doing the whole graduate thing, her character hopped in a van to follow the Grateful Dead. Hi, I'm Linda Cardellini, and I'm an actress. Fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you... Big parties. Do you throw a lot of big parties? I, I, <laughs> I have. I have before. I have a giant family, so I like to throw big parties. What is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? Finding new ways to uh, field any kind of rejection. I think mm. you have to constantly be evolving your, your defenses without, without putting up a wall and still being vulnerable. I think that is a, it's sort of an evolving skill. Because, you know, not everybody's going to love everything that you do. So you have to sort of forge ahead Mm -hmm. and at the same time let it roll off of you while still being vulnerable. That's a balancing act that I'm always trying to understand. What was it like when you were first starting out as an actress? It was hard, but I was resilient because I was determined that I would do it. And there's this part of you that, you know, I say like you have a little bit of a screw loose in order to (laughs) to believe that you can fight against all those odds and do something that is, you know, relatively to me, it seemed impossible. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I thought somehow it would be possible. And you sort of start to you concentrate on the positive things that happen and you try to eliminate the negative ones as you go along. But that's not always easy. What is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big, long list. <laughs> well, right now, I have a, uh, a 10-foot table in my <laughs> front room that is taking up the, the majority of my front room. My friend's aunt was, they were getting rid of a lot of her things, and I thought, well, that's a beautiful table. Let's take that home. And it's actually just served to collect 10 feet worth of things that we should actually be putting away. What is your most prized possession? I have about eight place settings of this Depression-era milk glass that my grandmother collected going to the movie theater back in the day. And back in the day, when, as an incentive to get people to come out, they would give them gifts because, you know, so many companies were going under during that, that time. And so in the 20 and thir- 20s and 30s, they gave away this milk glass as you went to the movie theater. So I have eight place settings that my grandmother collected going to the movie theater as a kid in San Francisco. To me, that's one of my my most special things that I have because it reminds me of my grandmother and it also reminds me of her sort of struggling coming up and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and collecting. My grandmother kept everything perfectly. Is there any advice that you wish that you had received when you graduated college, whether it be about work or life, that you think graduates should hear? You know, the world's really wide open. And whatever it is you studied or whatever it is that that you are passionate about, if it's not what you studied, that's okay. But find what it is that you love, because life is too short, and, and do what you love and do it passionately if you can. And uh, and that will take you further spiritually than, than anything. That was Linda Cardellini taking the Marketplace Quiz.
And it is only appropriate to end our graduation special with a commencement address. Heather Haverleski writes the Ask Polly advice column for New York Magazine. She also wrote the book How to Be a Person in the World. So here's her advice on how to go out and do that. On your graduation day, everyone tells you that the future is wide open and the best part of your life is just beginning. Everyone urges you to believe in your passions and throw yourself into your bright, shining future. What people don't talk about is fear. They don't acknowledge the unbelievable fear that haunts you every minute of every day. It's like you're being pushed out of a plane without a parachute as someone yells after you, follow your dreams, embrace the adventure. But it's totally normal to be afraid because for the past four years, you've been living in the middle of a park where people read great books and drink beer all day long. And now you're being kicked out of paradise. You've got to pay your rent and your bills and your student loans and your health insurance. God only knows how. And you're probably going to have to take some entry-level job where you report to a middle-aged guy who uses words like impactful and scalable best practices and core competencies without even cracking a smile. But you've also got to decide what to do with the rest of your life, which is like falling out of a plane and trying to solve a Rubik's Cube before you hit the ground. The fear can be overwhelming. And what your fear tells you is that only losers feel fear. Your fear interrupts that middle-aged guy talking about core competencies and whispers in your ear, you have no core competencies. You can't follow your dreams because you have no dreams. You can't have adventures because you're too afraid to have adventures or to do anything at all. But your fear is wrong. Everyone is afraid. You'd have to be a robot not to be afraid right now. And sometimes successful people are the most fearful people of all, but they use their fears to fuel them. That's what you have to do. Admit that you're afraid. Face your fear. That doesn't mean battle it. That means keep it close, like a potted plant in that dumpy new apartment you can barely afford. It will always be there, so you might as well make a little room for it. Making room for your fear instead of hiding it makes room for other things too. Sadness and dread and angst and longing, but also hope. Because even though the world is scary, all human beings feel afraid, and we work hard to believe in ourselves and to believe in the world in spite of our fear. Don't pretend that you're fearless, because if you pretend, you'll never know what your passions are. You have to feel fear to feel your passion, and it's not an adventure if you can't feel the fear. Adventures are partially made up of fear. Fear provides the suspense. You're still going to have to work hard. You won't be going back to paradise. But when people treat you like you're small and foolish just because you're afraid, that means that they're still running from their own fear. So just ignore them. I hate to say this, but it's true. Some robots will want you to feel small because they can't feel anything at all. But you're not small. You know that. You contain multitudes, especially when you're afraid. And when you look back on this time years from now, you'll almost miss the fear a little bit. You'll look back and say, I had it all, but I didn't even know it. I was so afraid, but I was at the center. I could breathe in happiness. I could swim to the moon. I had everything I needed. Heather also took the Marketplace quiz. You can listen to that on our website, marketplace.org.
And that is it for the show this week. Marketplace Weekend is produced by Peter Bellinon-Rosen and Eliza Mills. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. Special thanks this week to Katie Long and Haley Hirschman. Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Naren Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.